Hi everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you are listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Today, I am pleased to be joined by fellow members of the Acromegaly community, Madison, Becky, and Allison. All three are currently taking my CAPSA. Throughout our discussion today, we will shed light on living with acromegaly and how our experiences have influenced our approaches to life and how we started to become an advocate for ourselves and others. I want to thank Kiasma for sponsoring today's event. Pituitary World News is being compensated for our efforts to host this conversation so we may continue to achieve our mission of delivering state-of-the-art and up-to-date information from healthcare experts. Please stay tuned for the full important safety information for MyCAPSA, Ocreotide, an oral prescription medicine used in the long-term maintenance treatment of acromegaly in people for whom initial treatment with Ocreotide or Lanreotide has been effective and tolerated, which will be provided at the end of the discussion. Welcome, everyone. Why don't we start off by having everyone share some background on themselves. Allison, would you like to go first? Absolutely. And JD, we have a common connection through Dr. Lewis Blevins, who's my endocrinologist. I've heard so many wonderful things about pituitary world news throughout the years. Well, thank you for saying that. (laughs) Being an advocate is so near and dear to my heart. I also, I have a master's degree in public health, so it really ties everything together. I was diagnosed with acromegaly back in 2017. I had my surgery at UCSF with Dr. Blevins' team. Unfortunately, they were unable to get all of my tumor. So as a result, I was on injections to manage my symptoms until I switched to my CAPSA back in November. Switching to my CAPSA helped to eliminate the terrible injection pain as well as the awful lumps that I would get at the injection site. Thanks, Alison. Uh, it's wonderful to hear from someone else with a close connection with to Dr. Blevin. So um, how about you, Becky? Thanks, JD. I was diagnosed with acromegaly back in 2015. And like Allison, my surgery left residual tumor as well. And I've received various treatments throughout the years. I also started on my CAPSA a few months ago, and I'm very happy with it. I am a veterinary nurse, so I do have the medical background, it's just with animals, but um, I've also done a lot with clinical trial research, personally with acromegaly and within the veterinary field as I was a clinical trial research coordinator for over 10 years. So I love getting new information out there and helping others. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, Thank you for sharing, Becky. Madison, why don't you tell us a little about yourself as well? Hi, everybody. So I was diagnosed with acromegaly at the end of 2015 and had my surgery in February of 2016. The surgery didn't end up working and I had to try a number of different injectables at that time. I've been taking my CAPSA for about six months. I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I was once a medical assistant before my health decided to take a turn. And I decided at that time I needed to focus on my children. Yeah, of course. Well, great. 
thank you everyone for sharing your stories. Uh, why don't we jump into discussing everyone's diagnosis and treatment journey? And what was it like for you? Uh, Madison, why don't, we, why don't you go first? Well, it all started in May of 2015. I was pregnant with my second son and I started having visual problems and severe headaches. I discussed it with my primary care doctor at the time, but she said the symptoms were related to my pregnancy. I ended up in the ER about five times needing to get migraine treatments. I tried other doctors, but they all said my symptoms were my pregnancy. I still didn't have any answers. So I tried one more primary care doctor. I, he decided at that time to order a brain MRI and lab work when I told them that I never had any done. He called me later confirming that I had a pituitary tumor and I had acromegaly and provided me with a referral to Portland, Oregon. And I ended up receiving a surgery at that in February 2016. The doctors told me they believed they got all the tumor, but unfortunately, my recovery was miserable and they did not get all the tumor as suspected. Therefore, I started on injectable treatments at that time, and they were three times a day. But the injections were so painful, and the injection-related side effects were a lot for me to handle. I was having to psych myself out every day just to get through them. I experienced chest pain and dizziness. It made me scared and it just wasn't working for me. My dad ended up helping me with my boys since I was experiencing muscle weakness and I couldn't lift anything heavier than a gallon of milk. I was worried about my kids and what the future might hold for us. Well, that sounds like a, a really interesting experience you had. So how, how quickly did you get diagnosed? So as I can remember, it was about seven months, which I've heard is a lot faster than most people. The last few months before receiving my diagnosis were really tough. I just had, I never had really bad headaches before. And with these head, headaches, I couldn't focus on my job. I would be with a patient and not remember where I am. So was it ever a part of the conversation to talk about how long you may have had the disease prior to your diagnosis? They talked about it a little. They suspected that I had it for quite a while, but they told me they never saw it in people as young as I was. I was 23. And looking back, my dad noticed my physical changes in my teen years. Well, well thank you for sharing your experience in medicine. It's, uh, it's really encouraging to hear that after a difficult start, your treatment journey, uh, you seem to have found a treatment that better fits your, your lifestyle. Uh, what about you, Becky? Well, my initial signs started probably 20, 25 years ago. I was diagnosed about 16 years ago. I had headaches and rapid heart rate, excessive sweating. I mean, if you look at the symptoms, it was kind of like a check, check, check for me. But the main indicator that helped me to be diagnosed was when I was at my general practitioner, just for a routine check, and he heard me saying, that I was spending so much money resizing my rings. Mm. So that's really what shifted the conversation. And as a result, um, we strongly suspected my diagnosis before I even had any lab work or MRI done. Um, my surgery did go well, uh, but I did notice even with the, the changes of less swelling and finger size decreasing and my teeth moving back together, but, um, I knew things were not completely right. So I did start with the three injections a day like Madison did. 
and eventually I went on to several other treatments before finding my CAPSA. During the time that I was doing those three injections a day, the morning and evening shots were all right, but the afternoon was really a challenge. Um, luckily, my coworkers were very understanding and they would let me step away to administer the shot. But even after learning about the new once a month shot, it was much more convenient, but at the same time, I needed to have it administered at a doctor's office. So I couldn't give myself that shot with such a big needle. So even with that, it was very challenging to get my treatment on an easily path. Sure, I, I can imagine. Uh, Allison, uh, what were your experiences? You know, it's hard looking back to figure out exactly when my symptoms began. When I was 18, my doctor found benign adenomas in my breasts. And as I got into my 20s, I started developing more and more of these lumps and no one really knew why. And I know it sounds extreme, but the lumps were getting so plentiful and so painful um, that before I got diagnosed with acromegaly, I was looking into getting a double mastectomy done. So I was almost 30 years old when after seeing multiple specialists, I went to an endocrinologist who fortunately was really thorough in his testing. And he was the one who discovered that my IGF-1 levels were elevated. He ordered a pituitary MRI, which showed the pituitary tumor. Um, I did end up having surgery. And again, the team thought that they had gotten all of the tumor. Um, but unfortunately, the follow-up tests showed that my IGF-1 levels hadn't changed very much since before the surgery. So I started using injectables um, and use them for about two and a half years before I switched over to my CAPSA. I didn't take my decision to take my CAPSA lightly because my doctor did tell me that my CAPSA could cause problems um, with the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. And many people do often experience side effects such as headache, joint pain, nausea, weakness, diarrhea, and sweating a lot. But ultimately, I'm very happy that I made the decision to switch. Yeah. You know, it's very interesting. When I was diagnosed, I don't know if I'm sure it happened to all of you, I thought I was the only one that, uh, I was the only one that had this until I started to meet uh, other people uh, with stories that were so similar to mine. And my doctor, my primary care doctor, who had missed my diagnosis for about 20 years, um, recognized somebody about after three months of a diagnosis that actually had acromegaly. And he, he had two diagnoses in less than six months. So that was uh, pretty interesting uh, uh, how it's, when you see it, you, know, you actually never miss it. Uh, but speaking about treatment journeys, uh, let's talk a little bit about how each of you are doing with your acromegaly treatments today. How about we start with, again with Madison? You're it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. I'll go ahead. As I mentioned earlier, I had a difficult time with injections. I gave them to myself, but I dreaded it every single time. It seemed like my endocrinologists were more focused on lowering my numbers than my actual symptoms or what my daily symptoms were. When my capsule was approved, I have to admit, I was freaking out happy. I thought <laughs> if it didn't work, well, it didn't work. But I was going to give it a try, as I knew that I always can go back to injectable treatment. I owed it to myself to try my GAPSA. Well, that's great. Allison, how about you? 
Well, I can totally relate to Madison's reaction. Uh, when we figured out that I unfortunately had residual tumor after surgery, Dr. Blevins originally suggested radiation and I was not interested in that at all. Um, so after further discussion, I decided to start the monthly injections. Um, I did get used to them, but I felt like I really had to schedule my entire life around them. And as I mentioned, I was also developing the painful lumps around the injection site, which, I mean, they never seem to really go away. No, yeah. Um, did I mention that I also have a huge needle phobia? I am very scared of needles. Even when I don't have to do the injection myself, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, and then when COVID came to, into play this past year, it became especially difficult to make it to my injection appointments because so a lot of acromegaly symptoms are actually really close to COVID symptoms like headaches and fatigue. So sometimes I didn't actually know which one I was experiencing. And in order to get clearance to go into the doctor's office to receive my injection, I needed to pass the test in essence to say that I hadn't experienced any COVID-like symptoms recently. Mm -hmm. So there were several occasions where I had to go and get a COVID test and demonstrate that I was negative before I could go in and get my injection at the doctor's office. So for all of those reasons, I was so happy to see the FDA approval for my CAPSA because it really meant that I could add some control back into my life. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Becky, what about you? Well, you know, I thought my surgery was all that was needed for about a year until my blood work showed that um, my hormone levels weren't normal and that I had some residual tumor that was encapsulated in some scar tissue, so it didn't show on the MRI, but blood work doesn't lie. Um, and so as mentioned before, I started on those three-a-day shots that I found so very inconvenient. Um, finding time to administer the shot during work hours was a challenge, and just having to have a cooler with you everywhere you go is just awful. Um, at first, I didn't have an issue with giving myself a shot, but, you know, after a while, I started even developing phobia, even though it was this tiny needle. But, you know, every eight hours having to find a new spot on the stomach, and yeah. I don't know, I just became very phobic. <laughs> so it was also a hassle in the fact of traveling. Um, you know, I had to have a cooler everywhere I went if I wasn't going to be home in eight hours. So we even went as far as buying a small refrigerator to put in our car so I could keep my injections cold. And then after that, I switched to the once a month injection, but I had to travel that hour to my endocrinologist to get the shot, which meant taking a whole day off of work. And anytime we would want to travel as we had an RV and my husband had some medical issues. And when we knew we wanted to get some traveling in, um, we would schedule our lives of traveling around the injection. We would, I would get it in the morning, the day we were taking off and way we'd go. But it was just kind of crazy how much, you know, time you have to arrange your life around treatments. Yeah, I know. But, yeah. So um, other than that, you know, for 15 of those years, I was scheduling my life around this shot every four weeks. 
And of 12 of those years, I was having to drive over an hour each way to get my shot. So there was just a lot of inconvenience about it. I'm totally amazed because we've all done it, how you have to plan your holidays and vacations around treatment when you have to have these medications that require you know, either refrigeration or pack special packing or preparation or somebody else has to give it to you. It's truly amazing. Um, the change, the, you know, the change that you right. experience. Yeah. So yeah. I was excited about my CAPSA for that reason. Um, I first planned, uh, first planning around the food made me a little nervous because yeah. the trade-off, but I thought the trade-off with work was worth it. I'm used to snacking and eating when I want to. So I was worried I wouldn't be able to stay compliant with the dosing on an empty stomach. But I found that following an instruction is easier than I originally anticipated. I take my caps in the morning as soon as I wake up. And that's practical because I haven't eaten yet. But taking a pill at night was a little more challenging for me because I have other medications that I need to take with food at bedtime so I just spoke with my doctor and we came up with a plan. Well, it sounds like it's, this is really working for you given your other experiences. Uh, and how did, how did you make that decision? Well, I had initially heard about my CAPSA at a conference for acromegaly patients in Chicago several years ago. And actually at that conference, I also was connected to my, my now endocrinologist there. And um, it was him that gave me a call and said, hey, they've approved this. What do you think? Yeah. What, what about you, Alison? How did you find out about it? I originally heard about it through one of Jill Sisko's Facebook posts mm-hmm. on the Acromegaly community page. And when I got the news that it was approved, I was so excited. I went on the website and I reached out to Chiasma's patient support team called CAPS to let them know that I was interested so I could get started as soon as possible. And then I discussed it with Dr. Blevins and he had known in advance, even before it was approved that I was waiting for the day when the news oh, would come. Cool. So <laughs> he, w- he wasn't surprised when I reached out. Yeah. Um, but working with the Chiasma Caps team really helped me to feel empowered to have that conversation with him. Um, and they were just so helpful in getting me started. That's great. So, so very interesting stories uh, that you're, you're telling us. Uh, but let's switch gears a little bit. I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on sharing your personal stories as we're doing today. Do you believe it's important to share your story with others? Well, I think so. I think the big part in my mind is that it gets the news out there. Um, as you've mentioned, there's so few of us that it's just very important to get out there what we go through and how we're, we're working through it together. I always encourage everyone to focus on their health, be proactive, speak up, and advocate for themselves. I absolutely agree. I'm very outspoken about, you know, my personal journey with acromegaly. And I think it's so important to raise awareness of rare diseases like acromegaly. I mean, everyone knows Andre the Giant, but very few people know about acromegaly or make the connection between the two. I mean, just having one more method of raising awareness is a really good thing, whatever we can do to get the word out there. Yeah, I think acromegaly is a disease that it's, it's so off the radar 
it was interesting uh, to me to learn you could actually have a tumor in your pituitary gland. It just never occurred to me that that could happen. Uh, and, and then the other piece of it is that you never think yourself as, you know, having what Andrew the Giant has. It was such an extreme case. It, it, you know, it's just not a good uh, a comparison, I guess. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. yeah. It, is, it is really scary to open up and talk about your symptoms and be honest. Living with acromegaly isn't easy. For women, it may be difficult to talk about ways in which acromegaly has impacted us. But when you open up, it makes people feel accepted and validated, especially if they're going through the same thing. I don't know how many times they told me or I thought that it was in my head, literally in your head. Mm -hmm. Opening up lets people living with acromegaly know that they are not alone, which I truly did feel alone at the beginning, and that there is a safe place where they can discuss their experiences with a group that understands them. So go, going off that thought, in your experience, uh, what do you think uh, worries patients the most? You know, I don't interact a lot with other patients, but in general, I think a lot of them worry about things like, am I getting the right treatment? Um, is the symptom I'm having today acromegaly or something else? Mm -hmm. uh, is my trust in the right doctor? I mean, I think all these questions are, are very worrisome. I think experiencing the symptoms is what really worried me. And from other acromegaly patients I've talked to, that's what they worry about the most. That's interesting. So what do you think are effective ways people can become more involved and help themselves through their acromegaly journey, even in groups, uh, and, you know, the, the, the support groups? Do you have any thoughts on things we can do or ways we can help as advocates? You know, one of the things that I think about is I don't know anybody in my town that has acromegaly. I don't know. Maybe there is somebody here, but I don't know that they're there. I mean, I'd love to be, have a way to see if there's someone close to me in my state or my area, my region that is going through the same thing that we could connect on a personal level. You know, we have our social channels. We've got our Facebook page. Um, but some people don't engage in Facebook much, including myself, honestly. So if there was another way that we could, you know, find a way to connect people, I'm sure there's other people who fail the same way as I do. And it would be great just to meet for lunch or coffee or whatever, and just be able to experience, discuss our experiences that we share. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's definitely issues with, with social media and the concern that people have about sharing uh, a lot of information in the internet. But if you're open to it, I think the online communities are, are you know, quite accepting and positive. Uh, uh, Madison and Allison, what, what are your thoughts here? Well, I think with a lot of people with rare diseases, they don't like to speak up or engage because they don't want to feel like a burden. When you're first diagnosed, like, like myself, I Googled symptoms, and I may realize you aren't seeing the same as other people. On top of that, you don't have anybody to talk to, which may feel and experience what you're having. But I do love social media and the acromegaly community page. So if I know someone was near me, I'd say, let's go get lunch or let's chat. Just being able to create more personal relationship would be so great. Mm -hmm. 
Social media has been so helpful for me personally. I really love connecting with other patients and I have learned so, so much about acromegaly from them. And we're all so different. I mean, there's so much diversity in the acromegaly patient community. We don't all look one particular way or have the same sets of symptoms. Again, so different. The challenge with that is then it can also make it more challenging to get a diagnosis or treatment. Mm-hmm. So was there, is there anything that you wish you knew? I think about this all the time. So is there something <laughs> that, I, that I wish you knew as you were making your treatment decisions that could be passed on to other patients? Well, I do have to say when I was first got diagnosed, even though I worked in the medical field, I wish I would have known that my voice actually meant something. My doctors told me what they could do, and I just went along with it. I didn't ask any questions because I didn't know about the disease. I lost four months of my life when I was told that I was just a fluke and I needed to keep trying the treatments. Now that I know, I should not have stopped. I should have engaged more with my healthcare team and get more opinions. Ultimately, a light went off in my head. My voice really does matter to me. Instead of just having having a voice, I learned that there are other options than just doing what one doctor wanted me to do. Not every patient can be treated the same. I think what I would want to pass on to new patients is to take a step back, take a deep breath. (laughs) Um, You know, when I got diagnosed, I wanted the tumor out yesterday. I wanted it out. I didn't want to wait. I was I was not my best advocate whatsoever. You know, I, I don't I do think that initial time of diagnosis is so critical. If we could just gather all the information, check into all the option treatments that we have and understand what they might be, I think we'd be better off making a, a good educated decision. In most cases, you know, we've had acromegaly for years and taking a few more weeks to research our options will probably not adversely affect our outcome at all, but give us what we need to make that right decision for us. Because looking back, I think I rushed my decision-making process and the choices that I made. Yeah, Yeah, that's very interesting. All of that is is so valid what you guys are are um, commenting on. Uh, you, Allison, you've uh, recently uh, worked with Dr. Blevins to model effective ways in which patients can advocate themselves with physicians and have taken advocating for yourself and your doctor very seriously. Uh, can you tell us about your experience that led to, to, lead, you to uh, led you to those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely relate to everything that Madison and Becky shared. You know, when I first got my diagnosis, the word tumor made me feel so anxious. I mean, as it would anyone, I imagine. Um, And I also received some confusing messages about treatment. So, you know, the endocrinologist who diagnosed me said that I would probably need surgery. So I met with a neurosurgeon And he said there was about a 70% chance um, of getting the entire tumor with surgery, which, you know, sounded okay. And then I met with another surgeon who said that he wouldn't do surgery because the chances of removing the tumor were quite low, around 20%. And I just remember after that appointment having a total meltdown. I just like 
sobbing on the couch because I was so scared, so new to this. And I felt so confused that, you know, these two neurosurgeons who were supposed to be experts in their field had these totally different approaches um, and, you know, different courses of action. And I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I also felt rushed for time because this was something that felt urgent that I wanted to get taken care of. So it felt crazy to feel like I needed a third opinion. Um, but that was what I did. I really wanted a tiebreaker and wanted to feel confident in what, what, whatever my decision was going to be. So I did end up moving forward with surgery. Um, and even though I still ended up on medication, I know that I made an informed choice and it was the right one for me, certainly at the time. And so that's why I'm, that's a big part of why I'm so passionate about speaking mm-hmm. up for yourself regarding your care because as a patient, you have to make yourself a priority and have tough conversations with your doctor. And sometimes that is not easy. So I was really excited and grateful to work with Dr. Blevins and the Chiasma team to model conversations to have with doctors and just show what that might look like. You can listen to the helpful strategies on how to make yourself heard on mycapsa.com in the resources section. Now more than ever, it's so important for patients to truly feel heard. Yeah, yeah, I think you're so right. And, and you know, given uh, the opportunity to give patients uh, tips on how to connect with their doctor successfully is so important. And I think we as patients and advocates have a really good opportunity to do that. Uh, and obviously, you know, if we could get uh, people to centers of excellence, uh, not everybody has that opportunity, but things would be much better off. But if we can get the information to doctors so they're, uh, you know, I think know what they don't know a little better. <laughs> I think we would be better off. Uh, but I think we can help. And it is important to be honest on, about how you're feeling because that is something that they, they, they need to know. Uh, and you shouldn't also get upset uh, with maybe needing a second, a second or third opinion. I think when I talk to all of my doctors, they encourage it. Uh, um, you know, I think that's, and that's, it's very, very important. So then you're sure about um, the decisions you're making. Um, so, uh, well, I just want to thank you all for your time. It, was, it has really been a, just a pleasure speaking with you today. Please stay tuned for important safety information and thank you very much for listening. Indication and important safety information. What is Mycapsa octreotide for? Mycapsa is an oral prescription medicine used in the long-term maintenance treatment of acromegaly in people for whom initial treatment with octreotide or lanreotide has been effective and tolerated. If these treatments are effective and your body is tolerating it, you may be eligible to take Mycapsa instead of the injections. Ask your doctor if this oral treatment is appropriate for you. What is the most important safety information I should know? Mycapsa can cause problems with the gallbladder. Tell your healthcare provider if you have any of these symptoms. Sudden pain in your upper right stomach, abdomen, or right shoulder or between your shoulder blades. Yellowing of your skin or the whites of your eyes, fever with chills, or nausea. Mycapsa may affect your blood sugar, thyroid hormone, or vitamin B12 levels. 
Tell your healthcare provider if you have any problems or conditions related to these. Your healthcare provider may monitor these levels during your treatment with Micapsa. Tell your healthcare provider if you have an irregular heartbeat. Who should not use Micapsa? Micapsa can cause a serious allergic reaction, including anaphylactic shock. Stop taking Micapsa right away and get emergency help if you have any of these symptoms. Swelling of your tongue, throat, lips, eyes or face, trouble swallowing or breathing, severe itching of the skin with rash or raised bumps, feeling faint, chest pain, or rapid heartbeat. Do not use Micapsa if you are allergic to octreotide or any other ingredients in Micapsa. If you need to know the ingredients, ask your healthcare provider or pharmacist. If you have certain other medical conditions, you should use Micapsa with caution. Tell your healthcare provider about all your medical conditions, especially the following. Pregnancy or breastfeeding, liver disease, kidney disease, or difficulty in emptying bladder completely. Tell your healthcare provider about all the medicines you take. Micapsa may affect the way other medicines work, and other medicines may affect how Micapsa works. What are the possible side effects of Micapsa? The most common side effects are headache, joint pain, nausea, weakness, diarrhea, and sweating a lot. Talk to your healthcare provider if you have any side effect that bothers you or that does not go away. You may report side effects to the FDA at 1-800-FDA-1088. Keep Micapsa and all medicines out of the reach of children. How should I take Micapsa? Do not take Micapsa with food. Micapsa should be taken with a glass of water on an empty stomach. Take Micapsa at least one hour before a meal or at least two hours after a meal. For example, you could take your morning dose one hour before breakfast and your evening dose at bedtime.